Welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg, and these are stories, true as we can tell them. In the Hi everyone, I'm Deb Benson. And I'm Matt Goldberg. We've got some more stories for you today. As shared by the people that live them. We are going back to March 2019's The Shortest Story, Episode 9. Featuring as many two-minute stories as we can jam into one evening of storytelling. It's actually our second episode of short stories from this season. Yep, last month or something. Anyway, you'll see it somewhere in the feed. But we featured 10 storytellers from the same show. We are now going to feature 12 stories from that show. It was such a great night of storytelling. So uh, let's go through it. Who we got for you today? We've got Smriti Bansal. We've got Josh Budman, Zara Chorge, Nisha Coleman, Audrey Charneau, Joanne Peltier. We also have stories from Vadim Gran, who's a surprise addition that night. Michelle Lukes, Mike Pellegrin, Eleanor Dennis, Elizabeth Varvaro, and Ariel Shirker. So let's get started. we got 12 stories. Here's Smriti Bansal. study date with my friend at a cafe when he walks in. He's tall, handsome, and the best part, he looks exactly like all of my ex-boyfriends. <laughs> so I'd been talking to my friend about just like how sad and lonely I'd been since my breakup. So she's like, dude, give him your number. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to give him my number. And so for the next 30 minutes, I get to work on like the perfect note. And there are different versions, but what I like land on is the classic, hey, you're cute, want to get a drink sometime? <laughs> I close, I fold that note, and I write open for a compliment, which I think was kind of cute. Uh, and for some reason, I also include my Instagram handle, because <laughs> well, we're in 2019, <laughs> whatever. So we finish our study date, um, and I go up to the waitress, I pay up, and then I just kind of do like a cool girl walk up to his table. I'm feeling good, I'm feeling empowered. And I go up to him and I say, hey. And he says, wait. And to my abject horror, I realized that I had interrupted him in the middle of what appeared to be a four-way business conference call. <laughs> And at this point, my brain is screaming at me, saying, abort mission, get out of here, get out of here. But of course, I decide to do the more awkward thing and just wait there until he gets done. (laughs) And so I'm waiting there, and 30 seconds go by, and he's getting visibly uncomfortable because there is a strange girl standing there who will not leave him alone and keeps smiling at him. And then finally, he lowers his screen, and he says, "Can can I help you? And in response, I emit this high-pitched noise, and I say, yeah. (laughs) And then I basically just throw my poor, sad note at him, and I book it out of the cafe. Now, I don't know if this is going to surprise any of y'all, but he, yeah, he, he didn't message me. He, he also did not slide into my DMs like I was hoping, but I did gain something valuable from that day, and that was the knowledge that after months of being heartbroken, I was ready to start dating again. Thank you. All right, uh, so I'm at my brother Mark's house uh, watching my 13-year-old nephew while Mark and his wife Connie are out at a movie. And Charles and I were going to watch The Matrix Reloaded. 
because I had recently introduced to him the best action sci-fi movie ever, The Matrix. And he loved it so much he couldn't wait to see the sequel. The only thing is we didn't have the DVD and it wasn't uh, streaming on Netflix, so I had to use my brother's computer to find it on an illegal streaming website, uh, which we already had hooked up to a TV, so it was fine. Uh, we turned it on, sat on the couch, and dove back into the Matrix. About 20 minutes into the movie, Mark and Connie arrive home, and I'm like, oh crap, that was earlier than I planned. And the first thing that Mark does is he rushes into the basement and says, I have to use my computer, and runs to the computer. So Charles says, don't worry, Dad, and he goes and moves the mouse to the pause button to stop the movie. And when he hits pause, a window pops open, and there's a naked Japanese woman. <laughs> so he goes and clicks it, and it closes, and he pauses it again. And another window opens, and he clicks it and pauses in another window. And by now, Mark's getting angry and starts yelling at Charles and says, Why'd you touch my stuff? You keep doing this. And Charles starts to get anxious, so now he's just clicking furiously on the pause button to stop. And windows are popping up everywhere. Then Connie walks in the room and says, Okay, Charles, time for bed. Looks at this TV, and it's this huge TV covered in like naked pictures and pop-ups everywhere. She turns to me and says, What are you showing my son? And to try to save myself. I go, Charles, cover your eyes. So he just stops and goes like this. So in the room, we have my brother Mark yelling at me for touching his stuff. We have my sister-in-law yelling at me for introducing porn to her son. My nephew's standing there like this. There's pop-up windows everywhere. And the movie is still playing the entire time. That was the last time I was asked to watch my nephew. Thank you. people who's super embarrassed about going to spas and resorts because I've never quite been able to embrace nakedness. And the Japanese onsen is the epitome of nakedness because you go into these hot spring baths completely nude. Sure, it's not like mixed sex or anything, but still it's weird to be naked in front of, uh, in front of a bunch of strangers. Um, so I was in Japan and I decided after much deliberation that I would in fact settle in for this quintessential Japanese experience. So I find myself in Hakone, a hot and heavy um, spring town, and then I'm in the locker room, I strip down, and then not uh, looking at anyone, I make straight for the shower area, shower in, and settle into the pool. The hot water touches my skin, it gets into my pores, and just wipes away all the wear and tear of travel. And then when I'm soaking in there long enough, sort of just floating in the hot water, until I think that like maybe a part of um, the pool is part sulfur and part of my soul, I realize maybe I should get out and shower again. Uh, and then, again, averting my gaze from everyone, I beeline straight for the lockers. But when I get there, there's a group of older Japanese women, much more comfortable in their nakedness than I am, having a full-blown conversation, and they see me and they decide they want to talk to me while I'm still naked. So I'm, I'm pulling out my clothes and like putting everything on and answering their questions like, Oh, are you here alone? All of this is in Japanese, so I'm using my bare uh, Japanese to get, get at this. Are you here alone? Futari desu ka? Yes. Ah, Canada jin desu ka? Kakkoi, it's so cool that you're, you're visiting our country. So thank you, thank you. Kirei desu ne, you're pretty. And then one of the ladies notices some water on my, on my shoulder, and she pulls out her towel and just starts drying me up. Pity, 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 pity. Because, like, like anyone would do in this situation, I just look at her and I say, uh, thank you very much. And then I book it out of there thinking, you know, in, in one time in the world, adventure was like putting on a bunch of armor and going into battle. And now adventure is maybe just embracing your nakedness. Yeah. <laughs>
So I'm heading to the metro, Jean Talot metro, and I notice that there's a cop car on the corner and it has its lights on. And usually when I see this, I just look around, see where the trouble is. But I don't actually see anything until I turn the corner and then I see wall-to-wall cop cars. They're absolutely everywhere outside of the metro and there's like... Uh, TV cameras and journalists and long lineup of people outside of the metro door that's completely locked shut and there's a caution tape around it. And I don't know what's going on, but I decide I'm just going to back away and I'm going to go take the bus at Saint-Denis. And I'm not the only one with this idea. There's a long lineup of people waiting for the bus. And I ask the person in front of me, a woman, I say, uh, Est-ce que tu sais qu'est-ce qui se passe là? And she says, uh, C'est une alerte à la bombe. And I say, Wow, c'est, c'est fou ça. And she said, bah, C'est surtout chiant. <laughs> <laughs> I think she must have been Parisian or something. Um, and the, the, the bus shows up and it's absolutely full, full, full. And she says, attention, hein, tu peux te faire voler ton portefeuille. Hein? And, you know, like, I, I grew up in a small town. We didn't lock our front door. We didn't lock our cars. And I have, like, this deep trust for human beings. But as soon as she said that, I all of a sudden just became very distrustful. And I, I closed the pockets, my pocket zipper and j- to protect my phone and my wallet. And you know, it's never pleasant to have strangers' bodies pressed up against you. But, but all of a sudden, these strangers are like hostile and mean and weird and creepy and assholes. And I don't know. I, I'm just keeping to myself. And then the woman beside me leaves the bus. So I take her seat. And I, I just quickly pull out my phone and text my friend, I'm being going to be super late. And then when it's finally my stop, I have to wade through this sea of people in my way, all these assholes and murderers and <laughs> creeps and monsters. And I'm just getting off of the bus when I hear, Madame, Madame! And I, I turn around and see young men running after me, and in his hand is a Metro card, my Metro card. And as I reach out to retrieve it, my faith in humanity is restored just as quickly as it was dismantled. <laughs> Thank you. and I'm part of the cheerleaders team and this is not mean girl cheerleaders team it's uh, Eastern Townships Cowansville cheerleaders team and our team is really not popular I mean every single competition we've done we've ended the last and uh, at every single football game on Friday nights the popular kids are throwing beer at us (laughs) and (laughs) saying things like woo cheerleaders so um, I'm part of this team, and at rehearsal, uh, I'm uh, cheering with this girl, Sonia. And Sonia is quite popular with the boys because she's hit puberty before all of us, of course. And I know that uh, I've learned a few, ye- uh, few days earlier that uh, Sonia has slept with my sister's boyfriend. And if you do have a boyfriend in high school, it's like a huge deal. Everybody knows. Sonia knows that I know, and um, and I'm not going to confront her about it because I'm way too shy. There's no way. I just want for people to forget really that I exist. So I'm not going to say anything. But here we are. We're placed into this um, this pyramid together. Well, a throw. So a throw is when uh, you have a bunch of girls playing a position like this at the bottom, and I'm the flyer. So I'm the person who's supposed to get thrown into the air, and the purpose is that I have to touch um, touch my hands with my feet. So I go for it, just very, like, as hard as I can. Everybody's positioned, and I just kick my legs too early, and Sonia's at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so I hit her right in the face, <laughs> and she falls on the ground. As she gets up, her face is covered in blood, and 
it turns out I had broken her nose. And I feel sort of embarrassed. Of course, Sonia, isn't, she didn't deserve that. But I have to admit that uh, when I got home and got to tell this story to my sister, I couldn't help but feel a little bit of joy and pride that I got to defend my big sister. <laughs> Yeah, hot yoga's happened to me. <laughs> I'm deep breathing, I'm all flexy and bendy, I'm totally zen, I have the right pants. It's going really well, except, well, for one thing, I'm distracted in class by the sight of a very large cockroach moving across the floor. <laughs> and I'm bug phobic, so it's breaking my zen, and <laughs> I'm thinking way too much about it, like, how come no one else in the class has noticed this massive, slow-moving bug? Is it the same cockroach? Is it some kind of zen roach master? Nobody, <laughs> nobody told me. Um, I'm not sure what to do, but mostly I'm thinking, logically, I know that roach ain't alone. <laughs> I speak to the owner like, hey. <laughs> She says, yeah, we're working on the problem. Yeah, no, no. I offer to kill the roach. It's slow moving. I can work the hit into a yoga pose, subtle but effective. <laughs> yeah, slow moving roach, advantage me, bendy and flexible. <laughs> she says, no, no, that would send the wrong message. It's no use. It's my zen or that roach. We can't coexist. It's decided, it's done, it's destiny, an epic yogic duel. That night, the roach approaches my mat in class. While in downward dog, I reach for my yoga block. I slam down. Timed for the next pose, I jump forward, disguising the thud that kills that bug. I leave the yoga block up, displaying the carcass of the dead roach. Yeah, I'm sending a message. Um, it's a um, number of years after I moved to Canada. I uh, was still learning on uh, how to smile because apparently everyone smiles here. <laughs> it is not the way I grew up. Uh, in Russia, there's a saying, uh, smile without a reason is a sign of an idiot. <laughs> and uh, if you Google Russian smiling, you're going to get lo uh, lots of articles on how Russians do not smile. <laughs> so I'm still, and I'm still working on that, but uh, my therapist challenged me uh, to go to the metro and pick a stranger at random and smile at them. <laughs> and for someone who grew up for well, like 30 years without actually doing that for no reason. It's a bit of a challenge. Um, so I figure I gotta do it sooner or later. I have to try it. I'm an adult. We're all adults. We ju I just gotta go and do it. So I get on the metro. There's an elderly woman sitting in front of me and I go. <laughs> and we're at the stop so she stands up and leaves. Um, I, all right, it's the first try. It's a closed metro. They can't run away if we're between the stations. Turns out that people can move away to the other part. 
or, and wait until they can we get to the station and leave. So I figure maybe give it another couple of weeks before I try again. <laughs> so it's been uh, a few years. It's a work in progress, but it's getting better. The other day I was on the metro and a stranger smiled at me and I smiled back at them and I kept walking and then I thought, oh, how nice they smiled at me. And I smiled at them back. Did I smile at them back? <laughs> I hope I did. <laughs> oh God. You know, when I was a teenager, um, smoking pot was kind of contraband. Well, not really. I mean, but we smoked generally in the people's basements or in, a, in, on, in the playground in the middle of the night. But um, it's, things are really different now. This last week, I was in Puerto Vallarta with my parents and my sister, and my stepmother came running back to the house super excited because she just bought two ounces of pot <laughs> from a random guy who was walking down the beach. And after telling her that, you know, that's not something you do. You really need to know who you buy drugs from. She asked me to smell it. And it did smell like pot, but it was really green. So she started to cure it herself so that she could use it for her painful neuropathy. She first put some of it in the microwave, and then she started heating it on the stove in a, in a pan. And when she finally had enough to roll a few joints, she convinced my sister, who hadn't smoked pot for at least 30 years, to show her how to roll. <laughs> and then she lit up, and we told her, Carol, you really need to go slowly with this. Like, take a puff and see how you feel, and then you wait a little while, and you might take another puff. So she started, no. No, 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 I don't feel anything. And so she smoked an entire joint, and she was about to roll a second one when we stopped her. But 20 minutes later, we found her in the bedroom, asleep, sitting up. She was getting dressed for dinner, and her pants were halfway up her legs. In the next week and a half, she took her time and learned a little bit more about pot consummation and how much to smoke. But at the end of the week, she still had about one and three-quarter ounces left. And I asked her what she'd done with it, and she said, I hid it in my suitcase. <laughs> and it's not the kind of discussion you really want to have with your octogenarian step-parent, but it was really like, Carol? If you take that pot over an international border, you will be arrested. And my sister said, and you'll end up in the pokey. <laughs> my father added, and I will only be able to come and see you once a month because I have theater tickets all spring. <laughs> and that's what really got her. So she said she was going to take the pot out of her suitcase, but by the time she got it, or we got their bags into the, the taxi. She told me, listen, I hit it so well, I couldn't find it. <laughs> so we pulled her suitcase out of the, the taxi, opened it up, clothes were flying in sand and shells, and finally inside a pocket, inside another pocket, I found the pot. We head, they headed off to the airport, and out, out of the window, Carol screamed, take it up to John in 3B, he'll make it into posh brownies. John, it turns out, was 82. Things have definitely changed since I was a kid.
about <clears throat> 32 years, one month, and two days ago, <laughs> I was uh, working on the Red Sea on a topsail schooner. So I was first mate. We'd sail up and down the Gulf of Aqaba, Saudi Arabian mountains on one side, Red Mountains on the other. And we're talking idyllic situation, vermilion sunsets, warm sea air. It was just glorious. Well, except for when the captain would say, Michael, fix the toilet. <laughs> and so you got to picture me being squeezed into a very narrow end of the hull uh, with a hydraulic toilet. Now, you understand that the hydraulic part is you, you're, you know, so the, and move things forward, right? So it's that pressure thing. So, and I'm an amateur fixing a toilet. So I'm young and, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. And so, of course, I'm pushing and shoving and you getting patient. And, and, I, and, of course, poof, all over the walls. Galaxies of human excretions, speckles over the white walls, you know. So I'm, you know, young and extremely discouraged and frustrated by this. Uh, and I go up to see the captain and I say, you know, Ami, what am I supposed to do? And he looks at me and says, in Hebrew, leat, leat. I said, what does that mean? And he says, slowly, slowly. <laughs> and I want to smack the guy because, come on, that kind of advice is that going to help me with? But I go back down, and he's right. You know, I spend time just with the toilet, being at one with the hydraulics. <laughs> and I figured it out, you know? And so about a year, three months, and two days ago, I checked into rehab. And let's just say that's to fix up my own personal toilets. And it got, it, I'm sorry, but like, spoiler alert, rehab's difficult. I didn't see that in the brochure. I don't know if anybody read that, but I wasn't too impressed. About two weeks into it, it was starting to get really tough, you know? Uh, you pretty much stirred up every bout of magma in your soul, and you pried open all your Pandora's boxes and laid everything out. I'm getting pretty discouraged at this point. Uh, so I talked to another inmate, and I said, uh, <laughs> I'm really having trouble. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And she looks at me and she says, I know, this is so hard. And then she says, you know, in Hebrew, we say, leat, leat. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, slowly, slowly. And we both laughed. And sure enough, we made it through the next time, the time that was left. And now my takeaway is, if you're cleaning up other people's shit or you're dealing with your own shit, Leat Leat will get you through anything. <laughs> the resume guy is my partner, by the way. <laughs> We're learning so much. Okay. So it's a Monday night, it's around midnight. And I'm about to go on stage to do my fourth or fifth ever comedy set. And up until that point, I've always done kind of suspiciously well. Uh, but I had a sinking premonition that this time was just not going to be my night. And the reason was, is it was the middle of the night. There was like three people there. It was at a really sketchy bar. And the guy who went up before me, his entire set was about his addiction to crack and how it just ruined his life. But like not in a funny way, there is no funny way, but not in a funny way, in like a really sad, messed up kind of way. And I was like, okay, if, and he killed it, like people loved him. And so I was like, okay, if people are gonna laugh at his pain, they're probably not gonna laugh at my puns. But I was like, I gotta give it a shot, I'll try. And I never bombed before. So I almost didn't really know what it, it was possible. So I was like, okay. 
So I go on stage and I'm standing there and I do one minute of my set and there's like silence and I keep on telling these stupid jokes and it's just silence and I, I just want to die but I keep going because I'm like maybe I can turn this around and around my third minute I hear like just a very faint sound from a guy in the back and he just goes boo <laughs> But it wasn't like an angry boo, it was like a totally indifferent boo. And like, that's worse, you know what I mean? And so I look to the audience and I'm like looking for a familiar face, you know, like a little bit of reassurance. And I have one friend, one of the three people, <laughs> one friend there, and he's just covered his eyes. Like he can't look. It was like watching a puppy get hit by a bus. Like I was just so vulnerable and I'm like freaking out. And so I'm looking to the back of the room and I look at the manager. And I'm like, at least maybe he'll have some, you know, kind eyes for me to look at. And I look, and I wasn't wearing my glasses, kind of like now, on purpose. Um, and I look, and I think he's doing this, but he's actually doing this? <laughs> and I keep going, and I don't get the signal. And these stories are two minutes long, so I've learned my lesson. Thank you. <laughs> So, I'm at my sister's baby shower. My whole Catholic family is there. And without fail, almost every guest at some point will gesture to my sister's super cute baby bump and then say to me, so when's your turn? <laughs> like, I'm kind of used to it at this point, but it is getting old. I have been saying that since I was a teenager that I don't want kids but people just kind of, like, don't believe me. Um, they say things like, oh, I mean, I used to say that too when I was your age. Or, um, or even like, I mean, I just didn't know what love was until I had my first child. Um, but by far the worst thing that people say to me is this, like, super ominous sentence. Um, I mean, you say that now, but one day, dot, dot, dot. One day what? Am I gonna wake up one day and my uterus is screaming like, put a baby in me? Like, is this gonna happen tomorrow? I have a life plan. It's not a good plan, but it's definitely a plan that doesn't involve any children. So I'm at this baby shower, all of this is going around in my head, and I have the worst thought. If ever there was a kid that was gonna like kickstart this supposed biological clock I have inside of me, this is it. Like, I know I love my niece, like, I love her already, but, like, what if she is the baby that shows me the light of motherhood? <laughs> now I'm terrified. <laughs> so the first time I hold that baby girl, she is hours old. And she is so small. And I feel like I'm holding the entire universe in my arms. I've never felt so protective I've never been more in love, and I get it. My love for her is wholly unique and incredible. I, I still don't want to have kids. <laughs> like, listen, if that sweet baby angel can't like jumpstart this shriveled old womb, nothing's going to. <laughs> Thank you. So. My son is extremely hairy. 
And he's not here tonight, so we can talk about him. <laughs> but it's gotten to a point in my home where the dust bunnies are all looking like his little mini-me's. <laughs> and it's not very pretty. And the problem that I have is I cannot get him to shave. And any time I even ask him to cut the scruff off of his face, it's as though I'm asking him to cut off his manlyhood. And he's not having any of that. But he is becoming a man, and I'm getting really tired of living with a guy who looks like my rabbi. <laughs> it's just not kosher. <laughs> so I had to get wise to this topic, and like as a single mom, it's not like I could just pass him off to a father and say, get him to shave. So I did it in my own kind of a way, and it might not have been right. But <laughs> what I did was he and I, we're deep into a game of chess. We were nose to nose, chin to chin. And I looked him right in the eyes and I said, son, you and I, we are so genetically connected. And he was thrilled. He's like, really, mom, why? And I said, because those hairs growing on your chin, they grow exactly like my pubic hairs. <laughs> It worked. He ran so fast to the bathroom. Zim, zam, zoom, those hairs were gone. I'm a little worried, though, that I might have scarred my boy for life. No, no, there was a lot of blood. Really. Thank you. We are still accepting stories for the 10th edition of Confabulation, the Shorter Story. That's coming up on February 29th in Montreal. Um, and I'm hoping to have a lot of the same storytellers back that we featured this past year. But we're always looking for new storytellers. So get in touch, get involved. Confabulation.ca slash tell a story. Send us a pitch. Two-minute stories is a great starting point for um, any first-time storytellers especially. Two-minute stories are... You know, it feels easier to do than a 10-minute story. So if you have a hankering to tell a story, this is a good place to start. And uh, and as we've been saying, like we can have up to 40 storytellers. I think I promised the last audience 46. It goes up every time I talk. It does. It does. You know, if you look at the first two-minute story event, I think there were... There were 28 the first year 28. because it was the last day of February, and I thought that'd be great. Then the next year was a leap year, so we did 29. It's leap year again this year. It is leap year again. Exactly. So 29 times. times 2 is 58. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're not doing 58 stories. I'm, I've drawn a line. No, mainline will kick us out. <laughs> Never will. That's the joy of mainline. But we won't have enough seats for everybody. True. True. You know what? We got to go. We got to thank our storytellers one more time. Thank you so much to Smriti Bansal, Josh Budman, Zara Chorge, Nisha Coleman, Audrey Charneau, Joanne Pelletier. Vad Gran. Michelle Lukes, Mike Pellegrin, Eleanor Dennis, Elizabeth Varvero, and Ariel Shurker. That's it for this episode. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Confabulation. We're a nonprofit dedicated to the art of true life storytelling. We run monthly autobiographical storytelling shows in Montreal, Toronto, and Victoria. You can learn more about the show and sign up for our mailing list at confabulation.ca or check us out on social media where we're at Confab Stories. Confabulation, the podcast, is produced by our team, Dev Van Slet, Stephen Trepanier, and me, Matt Goldberg. Special thanks to the Conseil des Arts de Montréal for their support of Confabulation. We couldn't do it without you.